1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's not Saturday,
0: but we are going into the vault. To cover a little bit of time off, Rob and I are airing a classic episode of the show. This one originally published on October 17th, 2019, and it's the episode
1: about the garrison demoniac. That's right. This is the whole my name is Legion thing. Uh, uh, you know, Jesus casting out demons and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, we, we get into not only the story itself, but what does this mean? And uh, how is it used to enforce our relationship with animals? And just how intelligent are pigs after all? Yeah, yeah. This was originally published 1017, 2019. We're rolling it out again. Let's do it. Come out of the man, thou spirit. What is thy name? My name is Legion, because we are many. And he besought
0: him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea and were choked in the sea.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
0: McCormick, and it's still October, so of course we are letting out a great demonic oink today. Uh, Robert, I know, so so you wanted to talk about a demoniac today, and this was a very exciting idea to me, because this story in the Bible about the Gerasene or Gadarene demoniac has long been one of my favorites, but also because it's a story that concerns possessed swine. I think it gives us a great opportunity to talk about pig
1: technology. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a, a really fun one, uh, I guess you'd say. I this is definitely a a section of the New Testament that I remember turning to when I would if I was bored in church growing up mm-hmm. because it it is such a, a weird little scene, you know, Jesus meeting with uh, a, an individual that's possessed not by one demon, but by like thousands of demons, a legion of demons, and uh and then negotiating them out of the man. But not only that, sending them then in to a whole bunch of pigs, right. which subsequently uh, fall off the side of a cliff into the ocean and drown.
0: Right. And there are plenty of other stories in the New Testament about Jesus doing various healings, doing exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that happens elsewhere. But it's like the setting and the weird conclusion of this story that make it so memorable, going into the pigs. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we should look at this story uh, in a little bit of context and then uh, come back to talk about thoughts about its you know historical and theological role and then thoughts about pigs as animals. And, uh, and what a stampede of, of devilish intelligence they might bring forth. So I guess let's start with uh, the story in the context of the Gospel of Mark. And I think that's a good place to start because pretty much all scholars agree that Mark is the earliest of the four canonical Gospels, since it's clear that the other Gospels used Mark as a source. And like they made variations on it according to their storytelling priorities and probably also from the use of other sources. Uh, now, this story does also appear in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, but with some changes. Uh, so in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, the story happens in chapter 5 and it's right after a chapter where Jesus is out preaching to a crowd. He, he tells a crowd a bunch of familiar parables, like the parable of the lamp under the bushel basket and the parable of the mustard seed. You know, if you have faith, is only the size of a mustard seed, you can do great things. Yeah, busting out the greatest hits. Right. Uh, and in the chapters before this in Mark, he's done some various preaching, some healing. I think he heals the paralytic. He heals a man with a withered hand. Uh, but so at the end of this At the fourth chapter, after he's been doing this preaching, Jesus says, Okay, let's go across the sea, which is taken to refer to the Sea of Galilee. It's a body of water uh, in the area. So Jesus and the disciples leave behind the crowds. They get in the boat to cross the water. And on the way across, a big storm comes up and the disciples are all shaken in their boots. But then Jesus wakes up and he says, peace, be still. And the storm is replaced with dead calm. And then Jesus goes on to immediately shame his disciples for being afraid, saying, have you still no faith? And they're all, of course, amazed by his powers, saying, who is this then that even The wind and the sea obey him. So I think, in the context of the gospel story, uh, this preacher Jesus has been telling parables that show his great wisdom about the coming kingdom of God, and he is showing more and more direct power himself all the time—not just as a teacher, but as possibly some kind of sorcerer or even divine being. And that's when we get to the demoniac here. So they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Mark says it's in the country of the Gerasenes. But other Gospels say it's in a different place, the country of the Gadarenes. And that's why there are different names for this story: the, the Gadarene swine, the Gadarene demoniac, the Gerasene swine, the Gerasene demoniac. But wherever it is, we immediately
1: meet this man out of the tombs. Yeah, and uh, it's it's worth noting that uh, you know the differences in the the, the other two Gospels. Um, in uh, Matthew, for instance, it's not one man out of the tomb, but two men out of the tomb. Yeah. Uh, And then also in Luke, it's one man again, but this time he's also naked uh, as if to, uh, you know, really uh, stress the feral nature of the individual.
0: Well, yes. And in Luke's telling of the story, uh, it's I think it's that's the one where it's stressed that he was naked before he got the demons cast out. And then he puts on clothes once the demons are out of him.
1: Right. And then sometimes in like retellings, I've, I've noticed, especially in artistic depictions of this scene. Sometimes the artists seem to just pick and choose from all three, you know? So Uh, I saw one where it was two naked individuals serving as the men of the tomb. Oh, this is a very common
0: thing that happens because you've got, you know, different versions of the same story that appear across the four gospels. Sometimes people will just like, as modern readers, combine them all into one. So Mm -hmm. they'll put all the elements there next to each other in ways that don't always make sense, but it, it can be funny.
1: So what follows is, yeah, an exorcism scene, uh, you know, one that's maybe not as, as dramatic as modern horror viewers would, mm-hmm. would hope for. It's a little more uh, more of a negotiation in some respects. Yeah. Uh, but the, yeah on the face of it, we have a very disturbed individual who seems to live among the tombs and abuses himself with rocks, like scratching yeah. himself up with rocks. And, yeah,
0: we're, we're told he lives in the graveyard, but he spends day and night prowling the graveyard in the mountains, bruising himself with rocks and howling. yeah. Uh, and then, of course, when Jesus shows up, right, we get the uh, the unclean spirits. Immediately they start begging Jesus. Like they recognize his power, which I think is a thing that's supposed to be important in the story. Yeah. They realize they, they, they don't have a lot of bargaining uh, strength here going right. into this. <laughs> it's like when the bad cop shows up in yeah. the interrogation room, they're like, oh no. Yeah. Now we're, we've are we been getting away with this, but now we're in trouble. Uh, so they immediately beg Jesus not to send them away. They reveal their name, which I think we can come back to that, but that might be a theologically significant thing. They reveal their name is Legion, as in a large Roman military unit consisting of more than a thousand soldiers. It
1: was different numbers at different times. Yeah, you know, I was looking at at various modern uh, translations, and there's at least one translation that just said, our name is a lot because there are a lot of us. <laughs> I mean, I do think that's sort of what it was supposed to mean. Yeah. But, but, but it, I, it lacks that uh, right <laughs> the charm, you know? <laughs> Like, yeah. like what if it was our, the our name is a whole mess of demons <laughs> <laughs> like what if the film was The Exorcist 3 colon a lot <laughs> Instead of yeah. Legion, which, uh, which well, of course is referring back to this very uh, this very line, uh, though it might also be significant that
0: Legion is like a Roman concept, yes. because of course at the time, like a, a huge theme of the Gospels is that the the people, the Jewish people, are being occupied by the Romans, and there are a lot of sort of rebellious sentiments and anti Roman ideas. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and we'll definitely come back to some of the the, the Roman elements here.
0: Yeah. Uh, but to conclude the story, of course, this was in the, the opening passage we read, but Jesus commands the demons out. They ask him to send them into a flock of pigs nearby. And Jesus is like, OK, take the pigs. So he sends them into the pigs and then the pigs immediately go stampeding down into the water of the Sea of Galilee to their doom. Uh, so I see overall that I think this story in its place in the Gospel of Mark is kind of an escalation moment like Jesus. Jesus keeps showing greater and greater power, not just wisdom and teaching, not just power over the winds and the seas, but now even over a legion of demons. Yeah, And so all the disciples are, of course, like, oh, wow, how, you know, he's, he's so powerful. They keep emphasizing that this
1: is even more powerful than we thought he was before. So I was looking around for a little more information on this, and I, I read uh, Spirit Possession and the Garrison, uh Demoniac by J. Duncan M. Darrett uh, from the journal Man in 1979, uh-huh. and, and he made the following points about it. First of all, he points out there are no really important textual textual variants of the tale. Uh-huh. You know, like one, one man possessed by demons, two naked or not naked, like still the, the story is essentially the same. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder if that also refers
0: to the fact that there are not major like- Non canonical early older texts that have different versions of the story that change. Because yeah, that is true. the case yeah. with some stories.
1: He also points out that you know, the, the man here is is clearly shunned uh, as unclean, and he's engaging in in, in kind of an out of control cleansing ritual. Mm. You know, the scraping of the body, um, you know, the the, the the abusing of himself with rocks. That's interesting. Uh, you know, really on the same lines as like flagellation and so forth. Um, Derrett also com, uh, uh, draws comparisons to various rites of possession in other cultures where sensation to physical pain. is... Dulled, hmm. uh, which I think is a, an interesting point, because um, you know, there are various, like especially religious trials and rituals in which one will do something that is either you know definitely painful or takes on the appearance of painful, and just be via the uh, like the frenzy of the. Uh, of the ritual uh one is able to to experience less pain or to uh, uh or at least it's you know you get into that area where it's like there's the experience of the of the rite and then there is the uh, the story of the right, you know?
0: Well, yeah, this also makes me think, of course, about the nature of what was going on when people believed they encountered demon possession in the ancient world. I mean, uh, so, of course, there are multiple theories about this, and it would probably vary from case to case. Of course, one major and pretty obvious thing is the idea that people in the ancient world often didn't understand that they were looking at the symptoms of various mental illnesses and yeah. would you know would characterize that as a person being possessed by an unclean spirit but you could also imagine a person who might not necessarily have a particular mental illness but would be prompted in some various way by the religious Context to believe that they were possessed in some way and act out the role.
1: Yeah, like think of some of the the, the medieval uh, rites of penance that would uh, come much later, mm-hmm. uh, in which one would say, for instance, you know, flagellate yourself with uh, uh, with sticks or whips, uh, you know, w- wear ragged clothing and, and crawl through the streets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so, in, in in all of this, uh, Derek is saying that this is you know potentially uh, essentially a theater of protest that's mm-hmm. taking place. You know, that there is a, you know, there's a performance quality to it. Um, Of course, and then he points out that, uh, you know, Jesus acquires the demon's name, which is often an important aspect of uh, some sort of an exorcism uh, ritual. Yeah, I Uh, think that even shows up in like
0: the... uh, the the Conjuring movies, right? Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't know if there was a like an actual ancient exorcism precedent for that, but it's in the second Conjuring
1: movie. There's this whole thing where it's like, I figured out the demon's name. Now I can defeat it. Oh, yeah. It's definitely definitely part of Dungeons and Dragons. If oh, you know, really? You know the demon's name. You have uh, uh, some power over it, usually. From I'm, the Gospel of Gygax. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, he also points out what we just discussed already. Legion is, of course, a military term. The man is possessed by a host of demons. And Jesus. Jesus is either speaking to all of them or perhaps to the leader commanding them. And uh, Jesus is presented as being, you know, much more than a match for an entire legion of demons. Like you say, this is a a lot of this is about presenting just how how powerful Jesus is.
0: Yes. And I think that's an important point of comparison when even you look at something like in The Exorcist, you know the priests show up and the the demon taunts them and stuff. It's mm. like, okay, I'm ready to do battle. When Jesus shows up, the demon is immediately crying uncle. He's like, no, <laughs> no, don't send me out too far. <laughs> Maybe just let me go to the pigs. Like right.
1: it, he he immediately knows he's beaten. Now, pigs, Derrett reminds us, were slaughtered in offering to the underworld at Roman burials, uh, thus their connection to the tombs and to this particular individual's fascination with morbidity and with death. Uh, pigs are associated with sacrifices to demons as well as with bestiality. And uh, Derrett stresses that there, there is a sexual connotation to spirit possession, uh, you know, this idea of, of entering into the pigs or also just the idea of a spirit having entered into you and taken hold of your senses. Well, that also makes me think about another possible explanation for uh, a belief
0: in spirit possession in the ancient world, which is just that maybe a person wasn't even necessarily uh, experiencing symptoms of a mental illness or even acting out a possession. Maybe they were just behaving in an unconventional way and mm-hmm. people around them said, well, you know, nobody in their right mind would act like that. So if they violated sexual taboos or something like that, you could say they must have
1: had a demon yeah. in order to do that. Now, uh, one thing that he does point out uh, is that pigs are actually great swimmers. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also that they don't stampede. So there's a big problem with this idea of uh, of uh, potentially, it depends how I guess you read into the demon possession of the pigs, mm-hmm. but pigs on their own are not going to stampede. They're probably not going to drown uh, in, in the river. Now, I guess you could say that, well, they're not they're no longer pig brains controlling those pigs. Those are scared <laughs> demon brains and maybe they don't know how to swim.
0: I uh-huh. guess. Uh, well, th- this is funny. I was also looking up examples. I was trying to find things about pigs stampeding. I didn't really find anything uh, like good documented like zoological literature about pig stampeding, though I did find a news story uh, about supposedly somewhere in Syria a stampede of pigs killing some ISIS fighters in mm. recent years. But I think that's probably just like a news, like a journalists appellation it might have not have been a stampede but just like a herd of pigs
1: wasn't there a scene in a Cormac mccarthy novel where a herd of pigs uh tr- trample off into the river though probably a reference to this very tale i feel like it was uh, it was one of the Appalachian uh books like maybe child of god or um uh Outer Dark? I don't know. I've, I've read some of those books, uh, but I don't remember that scene. Hmm. But I could be wrong. Yeah, and it might not have been pigs. Could it might be have fish. been something else. Yeah. But there were a lot of drowned animals at one point, right. as I recall. Certainly. Now, on the uncleanliness of pigs, uh, obviously much has been written about this because there, you know, there there are uh, uh, supposed practical reasons that pork is prohibited in Judaism and Islam. Uh, one is that pigs are not very sustainable in drier environments. That's the argument. Another is that pork, of course, can contain trichinosis, but of course that's taken care of if it's cooked properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's often pointed out that like that even when Judaism and Islam, or uh, even when the Uh, uh, religions travel out of areas where you could make the argument uh, that a pig is not suitable for this environment, like the the restriction still remains. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm convinced by any of the alleged practical reasons behind the
0: prohibition on pork and other foods in Judaism and Islam because, I mean, I, I haven't seen any really convincing evidence there. It seems to be more likely This is another one of the many unique practices and characteristics you'd find in any religion or culture that don't necessarily result from some kind of clear material environmental mandate. I mean, there are some. Like we were just recently talking about, you know, sky burial Mm -hmm. practices in Tibet being a religious cultural practice but perhaps resulting from the fact that also within that landscape, it's hard to find places to dig graves. It's hard to find wood to burn bodies with. So it just sort of makes sense from a material environmental standpoint. I think – Sometimes explanations like that make sense, but I'm, I'm not convinced by any of the pork ones.
1: Right. Uh, another one that's sometimes brought up, well, in, in the texts themselves, sometimes a, a point is made about the cloven hoof, which seems kind of nonsensical. Um, Why? Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then there's also uh, the idea that well, pigs are omnivores and they may consume scavenged flesh mm-hmm. and that could be seen as unclean. But as we've discussed in the show before, even strict herbivores will eat meat on occasion. Right. Um, I unfortunately, like I, I did some searching on this uh, and uh, and saw some videos of like like how many ducklings can a can a particular cow eat? Oh, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it just it happens. It's uh, it's it's so it oh, seems... <laughs>
0: Never considered cows before. We thought about like deer eating meat, of course squirrels eating yeah. meat. But you what? think,
1: yeah, wilder creatures, right? But
0: Th- This now is just haunting my brain. Why is it so much scarier to be eaten by a cow than any <laughs> other animal I can think of? Because you
1: trusted it so much. You yeah, thought so. that you had it, uh, had it bested through a domestication. Seems so docile, then
0: it jumps seven feet straight in the air and eats you. Have you ever seen how high cows can jump? It looks
1: wrong. Mm, I don't know that I have. I've yeah. Certainly I'm always impressed by how fast a horse can move and how fast it can like plop onto the ground and pop back up again. So uh, let's get back, though, to the, the religious reasons, the, ultimately the social reasons to prohibit something like uh, pork. Mm-hmm. Uh, as explained by uh, Nigel Barber, PhD in psychology today, the signaling theory of religion puts forth that abstaining from something like pork is a way of signaling your devotion and provides something that a social group can bond over. And there's a, you're all going to be paying a ritual cost for this. Basically, food taboos keep co-religionists together. And, uh, and it's something where like everyone has to give up something. You have to pay uh, a fee uh, to to join this club.
0: Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Again, I don't know that that's the primary real reason, but that certainly seems very plausible. I mean, I think there are all kinds of things that religions do where the main goal of doing them is showing that you are a devoted member of the religion in good standing.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, like uh, for a modern example, one turns to like uh, the the straight edge movement, right? Mm -hmm. Where on one hand, you can say, okay, there is a sort of signaling going on here. People who are abstaining from uh, these various substances are doing so. And by doing so, they they can claim to be a part of a particular group. However, you, it's not the only thing. Like, they're also, uh, you know, any individual that's, uh, that's following that lifestyle will also point to other reasons why they are abstaining, mm-hmm. not merely to be a part of a group, but for, uh, you know, various other lifestyle purposes. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, but I, whether or not those other reasons
0: are also truly motivating them, I think it's hard to deny that shared abstinence creates
1: solidarity. Right. But to come back to the Romans, the Romans definitely ate pork. And so when the Romans roll in and uh, begin, uh, you know, controlling your territory, mm. they're eating the pork, you are not. Uh, there's a firm line to be drawn in the sand there between us and them.
0: Yeah, right. So there could be like people all around with flocks of pigs that they're preparing to eat and you can look at those things and be like, well, I that's no part of my life.
1: Yeah, and of course, ultimately, you know, rules against eating certain animals are gonna be kind of an arbitrary agreement. Uh, and I think a huge example of this, as we'll discuss, is is the predominant American notion that it's well and good to eat a pig uh, that eating a pig is something that should be celebrated, we should have parades about it, mm-hmm. but eating a dog, well, that's just that's just not acceptable. Now, on the nature of exorcism itself, we, we've covered exorcism on the show before, and I think it's always important, too, to think about rights of exorcism across various cultures as, as being rights, potentially, too, of expulsion of negative feelings, uh, negative attributes, and in some cases an attempt, a crude attempt in some cases, uh, to treat mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I think we have to think about, you know, the tendency to think about uh, exorcism as a, as a pure superstitious rite and, uh, you know, not to think about its connotations to more secular rites, such as expelling negative thoughts via breath and various meditation and yogic practices. You know, I mean, we don't think of that as exorcism. We don't think of that as magic. Uh, but it is an exercise that can allow us to, uh, well, to, to, to quote uh, Dune, to you know, to allow your your fear to pass over and through you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I
0: see no problem at all from a secular standpoint, uh, accepting that exorcism could sometimes be a successful psychological intervention, not because there are actually like like spirit demons, but because like going, like you're saying, like going through a cathartic event where you go through some kind of ritual purging. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a
1: reliable practice, but it's not surprising
0: that it might work sometimes. Yeah.
1: In some cases, and certainly not to say that it is a a better method for like for actual mental illness. Right. Um, but, but at any rate, I I just want to like frame, you know, provide a frame of reference for it. Mm Um, also, I want to come back to the idea of pig based, uh, uh, beings, pig based monsters and pig-based creatures, Mm -hmm. Um, you do see these pop up in a lot of different um, uh, mythologies around the world. Wherever there are pigs, I mean, it's just a given, right? Wherever there are pigs, there is going to be some idea of the pig, half-man, half-pig being. Man, pig monsters are are underrated for horror value. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like sometimes they're rolled out as more comedic relief, Uh, and and in those cases, I don't don't think enough... uh, you know, enough emphasis is placed on just how, how, um, horrifying, how scary, like, a wild boar can be. <clears throat> I have no respect whatsoever for the Saw movies. I, that's mm-hmm.
0: just not my kind of horror film. But the one thing I remember thinking was actually successful about them is just the fact that like the creep in them wears sometimes wears a pig mask.
1: Oh yeah, that was one of his his many um, disguises. Yeah. Uh, and one, a, a very dramatic individual. He had a mask. He had a puppet. Uh-huh. <laughs> he had a whole production truck. Uh, the puppet's just kind of goofy. The the <laughs> a pig mask is where it's at. Uh, now I'm want to have, make a quick uh, side note about uh, Chinese tradition you know in all this talk of demons and pigs I can't help but think of pigsy are you familiar with pigsy I don't think I know pigsy uh, pigsy or uh, what is it uh, uh, a uh, from Journey into the West mm-hmm. so uh, if, if you just if you look up Journey into the West and Pigsy uh, for instance on YouTube you'll find numerous clips I'm sure from the various film and TV adaptations of Journey into the West I mean there have also been uh, video game adaptations of Journey into the West uh, but um, the accounts vary but basically he was uh, punished by the Jade Emperor for lusting after Ching uh, uh, the goddess of the moon and his punishment he's cast down to earth and winds up in the form of a half pig half human monster but despite Despite his faults he becomes a great adventurer and is a key character in Journey into the West and ultimately slays many demons. Oh, a pig slayer? Did we talk about him in our in our monster slayer episode last year? I don't think we did. Um, yeah, I don't think Journey into the West has, has actually come up on the show before, but there's uh, you know there's a there's a lot of wonderful material there if we ever choose to come back to it. Oh. I guess I got to read it now. Yeah, or watch it. Like I say, there's some fabulous uh, film adaptations uh, of, of this. You got the Monkey King. You got uh, Pigsy, the whole uh, group.
0: All right. I think we have to take a break, but we will be right back with more about, uh, uh, about the Garrison Demoniac, the Gadarene Swine, pig science, and, and much more.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. All right, we're back. So I've already, I've already mentioned how this is uh, this is one of those little Bible stories that if you're if, if you're bored in a Christian church, you sometimes turn to. Uh, also, it has had a, a big influence on on horror and sort of demonic and occult uh, uh, themed material. Uh, most notably, sure. uh, The Exorcist Three
0: Legion. A surprisingly good movie, given that The Exorcist 1, of course, horror classic. Mm -hmm. Exorcist 2, one of the most hilarious bad (laughs) horror movies of all time. I remember it's got a line in it that's something like, your machine has scientifically proven there's an ancient demon locked inside her.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think if I had to rewatch an Exorcist film this year, it would be three. Like, Like, one is a classic, but also... I've always been one that is uh, believed that the best parts of The Exorcist are not the, you know, the screaming, crazy, uh, you know, uh, Reagan, you know, raging out uh, with demonic possession. It's the smaller moments. It's like the the little uh, what Pazuzu, the uh, creature that's been made by the child or or drawn on a uh, sheet in the background. Sure, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I actually think some of the best stuff in The
0: Exorcist is the parts where it's kind of like a 70s character study movie. Yeah. I mean, there are parts that almost feel kind of like, a, a Scorsese movie or something, yeah, uh, with like Father Karras visiting his mother and that kind of stuff, and his horrible nightmares. And it, it, I, I think it's a very effective horror film. But Exorcist Three is also really, really good. It's been years since I've seen it, but uh, or at least I, I won't say it's as good as the first one, but it's surprisingly good for being a third film. Right? I can't think of a third film that competes apart from Halloween Three. Ooh, um, Underworld 3 is <laughs> <It's, laughs> uh, the best of the Underworld movies. So there's that. Uh, uh, but the I the Am Legion thing shows up in all kinds of just like, you know, demon horror, right? Mm-hmm. It's, how can you resist? It seems like such an easy thing to pick up and run with. Uh, I, I remembered it also shows up in something that I inexplicably read when I was a kid. I remember buying a used copy of the screenplay or the teleplay to Stephen King's Storm of the Century, which is, I think, not... <laughs> ever a piece of fiction. I think he wrote it directly for like made for TV. Mm-hmm. So I was just reading the original work, which is his teleplay. Not King's best work, but basically uh, the Demon Legion shows up in a small island town in New England, of course, and he demands to steal the town's children. And he uh, he's originally disguised as a man named Linoge. And of course, it's an anagram for my name is for Legion, for Iron ah. Legion. But also he's played by, the demon is played by Colm Fiore, ah. a prolific character actor and the bad guy from one of your favorites robert chronicles of riddick oh yeah he's
1: the, he's the what the lord Marshal, right right yeah is he like he's like the main big bad in it? Isn't yeah, he? yeah. He's the the head necromonger. Yeah, yeah. And he's he is a wonderful character actor. He's been in tons of things. A uh, great comedic actor as well. Now, in any given like piece of a religious text, mm-hmm. there you know there's always various th- things going on with it, right? There's the question of what does it say? What is the story? What did the 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 people who wrote it uh, or, or told it or transcribed it mean for it to say? Mm-hmm. And then what is the tradition of using it? How has it been used and even misused? Right. Uh, over the years uh, to drive home particular points
0: right, often, what did the author intend for it to mean versus how has it been interpreted by the faithful over the years is a very different thing
1: yeah, and uh, one, one interpretation of this uh, text I was surprised by was the fact that it's been's uh, been used to uh, drive home this idea that humans have no responsibility towards animals, uh, particularly uh, 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 suggested by uh, Saint. Augustine of Hippo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Augustine wrote, Quote Christ himself shows that to refrain from the killing of animals and the destroying of plants is the height of superstition. For judging that there are no common rights between us and the beasts and trees, he sent the devils into a herd of swine and with a curse withered the tree on which he found no fruit. Oh yeah, that's the withering of the fig tree, right? Oh, yeah. Which is a different story in the Bible. Jesus comes
0: across a fig tree. It says there were no figs on the tree for figs were not in season and Jesus becomes angry with the tree and he withers it. Yeah, I mean he was having a bad day that day probably well i think that story it to go back to what authors actually intended versus how they're interpreted uh i think a lot of scholars think that that story was originally meant to be like a metaphor for people who did not bear good fruits mm-hmm. right so it's not literally about trees or, or showing off his abilities to uh, wither fruit right uh, with his, with at, his mind. at least yeah at least under this interpretation that seems very a very plausible interpretation to me but here augustine's running with it as like no, it's literally about trees. It's about how trees not worth nothing. You can do whatever you want to them; it doesn't matter. Jesus showed it in
1: this parable. Yeah, you or can, not parable, scene. Yeah. You can well imagine that, like Augustine, like was kicking a pig or something or a dog, and someone said, "Hey, don't don't kick that dog." And he's like, "Well, Jesus put a whole bunch of demons in pigs and drove them off a cliff." So. I have free reign to kick as many dogs and pigs as I see fit. Somebody like uh, somebody shamed him for
0: letting his orchard wither, and then he's <laughs> like, "I'll show you." And he goes and looks up the Bible. He's like, hey,
1: look right here." <laughs> so uh, various authors have 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 taken issue with Augustine's interpretation here. Uh, Christian uh, vegetarian uh, and Anglican priest uh, Andrew Lindsay, author of Christianity and the Rights of Animals, he, he counter argues and says, "You know, this is ridiculous. It is just propping up Augustine." Prior opinion that animals have no rights, and he contends that the demons ultimately they're selecting their own vessel here, and uh, and did so because they were weaker creatures, uh, and uh, you know and obviously the demons themselves don't care for animal rights. Uh, meanwhile, he argues that there are plenty of other passages where it's far easier to read pro animal ideas in the words of Christ than it is to uh, you know to, to to shoehorn in an anti animal rights agenda. Well, there is one thing that I actually do wonder about the story this is very interesting
0: is there supposed to be some kind of metaphorical or theological meaning to the fact that the pigs so that Jesus sends the demons into the pigs where they ask to go mm-hmm. he's like okay you can go into the pigs and then they go into the pigs and then the pigs immediately stampede and die why do they stampede and die? Is there is that just like uh, was that just added to the story because like oh okay th- you know that'd be an interesting way to conclude it. Mm-hmm. Now the demons are dealt with, or was there some like meaning there? Like does does this have something to do with the Romans or with the, you know? Yeah, because we already touched
1: that... on the connection between the Romans and pigs. We touched on the the connection between pigs and the location uh, with the you know the the, the tombs. Mm-hmm. So and then also you always have to wonder too with stories like this like what what other uh, you know pre-existing narratives where they're out there that have potentially been otherwise lost that are reflected in this story. Sure. Now, um, Thomas Aquinas, apparently, uh, I, I read, thought that this passage showed that Christ was primarily concerned uh, with men uh, rather than pigs. Uh, <laughs> but, and and uh, I've seen that pointed out a few different places, but I was looking for like a direct quote on this, uh-huh. and I was looking at uh, Aquinas' thoughts on the passage, and most of it seemed to come down to him stressing the fact that the, the pigs were unclean, so of course that's the best place to send a bunch Bunch of demons. They love unclean things, hmm. and it also sh- shows. He would he argued that the devil can't kill you unless you present yourself as an unclean animal. Uh, but I don't know. There, there's a lot of riffing on the scripture uh, that I ran across, but I'm not sure animal rights or the lack thereof was the the primary concern. Well,
0: while we're on the subject of the demonic oink, I think uh, th- this is a great opportunity to jump over to talking a little bit about pig intelligence, pig behavior, and even a very recent discovery about possible pig tool use. Yeah,
1: yeah that that was that was I think ultimately the the, um, uh, the bit of news that. Uh, that that made up my mind on pursuing this as a topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've touched on animal rights. We've touched on the notion of higher intelligence in the form of demons being dropped into the bodies of pigs, Uh, plus the notion that in some traditions, pigsy from journey into the West is a product of reincarnation. Hmm. Uh, So having touched on these notions, yeah, we come back around to the question, well, how smart is just a normal pig? You know, certainly, I, th- I think we can assume its brain is not on par with the humans. I mean, we can more than assume that. We can state that. Uh, but they're not the dumb animals we all, we sometimes take them for, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of comic relief. Uh, oh, look how dumb the pig is. It's covered in mud. It lives in a, a, a pig pen.
0: Well, I don't know if this is actually a good explanation, but at least something I've heard postulated in the past is – what if the, the common prohibitions on eating pigs in some religions stem from not the uncleanness of pigs, but the, the similarity between pigs and humans? Mm. I mean, there are a lot of sort of biological and morphological similarities. For example, some pigs having like fairly bare skin, kind of like less hair than most yeah. uh, mammals have, unlike uh, kind of like their human cousins, uh, the, just uh, things that, oh, the, <laughs> apparently human meat
1: tastes. Kind of like pork, apparently. I've also noticed that uh, when a pig is butchered, uh, sometimes its body looks like that of a, of a human. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly if you, ever, if you watch a lot of like cooking shows on uh, you know various streaming channels, and inevitably there'll be a scene where someone has uh, is, you know they're, they're rolling out the uh, the slaughtered pig, uh, or, and it's been you know prepared for the, the barbecue grill, and it looks alarmingly like a small person. Yeah, and so again, I don't know if that really has all that much
0: explanatory power, but I can see that. a little- little bit, like maybe we Anthropomorphize pigs because it's just already pretty close. There's a natural leap from humans to pigs.
1: Yeah, and boy do we! I mean, this has always disturbed me the level to which a barbecue restaurant will anthropomorphize a pig, uh, usually on the logo, where it'll be you know it'll be like smiling, happy humanoid pigs roaming around, or even doing grisly things like cooking themselves or climbing (laughs) into grills. It's like, what are you doing? Uh, You know, shouldn't you be like distancing yourself? from this notion uh, that the the pigs are rational beings and you are <laughs> eating them. Well, it makes me think
0: of the Chick Fil A marketing strategy where they would have the cows painting the signs. Oh yeah, it's
1: brilliant. Really Anthropomorphize the other animal. Right. That's that. <laughs> that was, I think, a wise choice. <laughs> so I uh, was so looking around a little bit just on sort of pre-existing uh, uh, knowledge about the, the intelligence of pigs because there's there's been a lot of uh, data on this. So mm-hmm. uh, Barry uh, Estabrook uh, wrote a book called Pigtails, which gets into all of this. Uh, he's a, a science writer, and he points out. Uh, so some of the big key points about pig behavior. First of all, pigs have been taught to play computer games. Okay. And this gets to, to basically to, to the fact that pigs have proven themselves to be very good at learning new tasks, learning new tricks, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially what's going on when they're playing a computer game in some of these experiments. They're trainable. Yeah. Uh, pigs have a sense of self and they can recognize themselves in mirrors. Really? Yeah. They can also figure out how a mirror works. Uh, I mean, not in terms of like how is it's made and how it's like how the optics of it, but, you know, they can, they can figure out what they're seeing through it and use it uh, to identify food. Oh, really? So they can recognize that the mirror is a reflection of what's you know, behind yeah. them and stuff. Yeah. And uh, also pigs can look at another pig and calculate what that pig might do or how it might act. A 2016 University of Lincoln study found that, uh, as with humans, a pig's judgment and decisions are governed by mood and personality type. Uh, they're also proven to be really good at remembering where food stores are, and not only that, uh, how they rate in size to each other. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, there's some, uh, the, the, the researchers put so much food, uh, you know, put put food here and here and here. No, they, they can remember the proportions as well. They mm. can rank them in their, their heads. Um, and they're also really good at deceiving each other when it comes to food. Oh, how does that work? Uh, basically, it comes down to the fact that they are, they're intelligent animals, but they're also highly social animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, they, in the wild, uh, wild hogs are not uh, living in seclusion. They're living uh, in, in contact with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they are social creatures. And uh, on, on the subject of domestication, uh, the domesticated pig uh, uh, diverged from wild hogs somewhere like 8,000 years ago. That's, that's when we began domesticating pigs. And, uh, and it's, it is kind of impressive that we haven't managed to domesticate the smarts out of them. Like, they're, like even the domesticated pig is uh, an intelligent creature.
0: Well, maybe we should explore more of that intelligence after we come back from a break and we can talk about pigs and tool use.
2: All right, we're back. So tool use,
1: this is, uh, th- this is r- really fascinating because, of course, tool use is our thing, the humans. Tools are the things we use to build our barbecue restaurants and to <laughs> slaughter pigs and then to cook pigs and serve pigs and then to eat pigs.
0: But apparently it takes no tools to cast demons from a human into pigs. So that's right. That's we're right. not told there's a wand involved or anything. So, yeah, Robert, I, I found out about this uh, interesting report on pig intelligence recently, I think because you shared it with me.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the, the day it came out, I, uh, I shared it with our uh, our Facebook group, uh, uh-huh. the Stuff to Blow Your Mind the discussion module, uh, which is a place you can go if you want to discuss uh, episodes of the show and uh, you know sort of related studies with other listeners. Uh, so, for some background, talking about tool
0: use, uh, tool use is often taken, of course, as one of the most interesting, most important signs of higher intelligence in animals. It's... You know, it's – I think, fairly plausibly argued to be one of the main things that makes humans very special, right? Uh, We've got language. We've got tool use, right? But we're not the only animals that use tools. A few non-human animals show pretty clear, undisputed use of tools. Uh, Of course, one great example is other primates, right? Like chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, and even, I think, uh, you know, gorillas and some monkeys and stuff. Uh, Chimpanzees will sometimes, like, use large rocks to crush nutshells. Uh, Use sticks for hunting or for fishing insects or other prey out of crevices and enclosures. We've also extensively covered tool use in some bird species in the past. If you want to learn more, you can check out our older episodes on the unsettling depths of bird intelligence, I think it was called. Yes. The primary examples here are birds like uh, corvids and parrots. A great example is the New Caledonian crow, which has been involved in a lot of research. They can use sticks or bark for rooting around inside crevices fishing for insects and larvae, uh, sometimes even displaying really startling levels of abstraction. I believe there are examples of them constructing tools, like putting things together to make tools or using one tool not to get food but to access a second better tool, which can be used to get food. I mean, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and of course there are other mammal uh, marine mammals like cetaceans also sometimes display behaviors that might count as tool use uh, I think you've mentioned before dolphins like using
1: sponges as tools yes yeah that definitely comes up what was the deal it's basically like for seafloor foraging I believe so yeah uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little foggy on the details of that one but but there is a def- there's definitely a case that has been made for tool use by dolphins uh-huh. yes e- even the
0: octopus actually' the mm-hmm. invertebrate tool use uh, the octopus uh, for example will sometimes carry shells or like coconut shells with them to fold over their bodies to use as shelter or armor or a hunting blind. Uh, and then there are more arguable examples of things that might or might not be tool use depending on your criteria. Uh, I mean, if you really stretch it, like sometimes even reptiles like croc- crocodilians are alleged to use tools, but huh. I think not everyone would agree on whether these behaviors count. But maybe the newest, most surprising discovery of animal tool use as of the day we're recording this is this very recent documentation of tool use by pigs. So what would count as tool use? Well... I was reading a great article about this new discovery in Nat Geo by Christine Delamore. Uh, I think this is the best article I've found about this new research. And she cites a definition here uh, which seems very reasonable to me. So the definition of tool use here is, quote, the exertion of control over a freely manipulable external object, which is the tool, with the goal of – Altering the physical properties of another object, substance, surface, or medium via a dynamic mechanical interaction or two, mediating the flow of information, Mm -hmm. Uh, which sounds a little complicated, but basically it means you got to use an object that's not part of your body, an object from the outside, to make changes to your environment or objects in your environment Or to control information somehow. Now, if you're wondering, like, how can information work? I believe that would mean, for example, by changing what can be seen and by whom. So if you use an object to help you see something you couldn't otherwise see or to keep somebody else from seeing something, Mm. uh, like you put up something to hide yourself, that could be considered tool
1: use. Right. So, yeah, like so, so the idea of, say, the octopus climbing inside of a coconut Uh, is is arguably an example of this
0: right and i think though there would be differences between uh like going into a hole is not tool use Mm. so you could be hiding there i think it would be like if you carry along a thing with you that you can hide inside right but then even then you run into some difficulties i mean when you see an octopus doing that that seems like tool use but when a hermit crab does it that that doesn't seem like tool use right so they're they're Mm. like Uh, there are always going to be these difficulties with these edge cases about what counts and what doesn't. So there's a lot of arguing, I think, in the scientific literature about does this case count or does it not count and why. But anyway, this new research about pig tool use originates with a conservation ecologist named Meredith Root Bernstein, who in October of 2015 was uh, at a zoo in Paris. She was observing a group of Visayan warty pigs at this Parisian zoo. And Visayan warty pigs are a critically endangered species of wild pig native to the Philippines. They're critically endangered, like so many other creatures, because of habitat destruction. It's the ruin of their natural rainforest homeland that has driven them to this point. Uh, You may have actually seen images of them. The males of the species often have a natural mohawk hair do running down the length of their bodies so they they look pretty cool yeah yeah they, they look pretty rough and tumble uh, but uh this group observed by root Bernstein they were in captivity and that's important to remember because that can sometimes change animal behavior i I've, I've got an image by the way for you to look at here Robert the hair is mighty absolutely I would go as far as to say that this uh, particular hog looks rad this hog could play some kind of like uh some kind of minor tough in a Russell Mulcahy movie yeah. <laughs> So in October 15, Ruth Bernstein, she was at the zoo and she noticed one of the pigs in this enclosure picking up a piece of tree bark with its mouth and then using the bark as a spade to dig around in the soil within its enclosure. Uh, the pig was named Priscilla, by the way, and Priscilla's mate was named Billy. So the French are good at naming pigs. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if the French name them, but Priscilla and Billy. And then, of course, there were, there were younger pigs in the enclosure too. Uh, but Ruth Bernstein, so she saw this happening, the, the pig picking up the bark with its mouth and digging with it. And she never heard of documented tool use in any species of pig. So she went home to look it up and she couldn't find anything in the animal behavior literature. So she kept returning to the zoo and documenting the pig's behavior with the help of colleagues. Uh, but for several months, she never saw it happen again. So what was going on here? Well, uh, Delamore writes that Ruth Bernstein suspected that the digging behavior was part of the pig's nest-building process. Mm. And, of course, nest-building doesn't happen year-round. It's not all the time. It's whenever there is a new litter of piglets coming, and this happens about twice a year. So Ruth Bernstein and her colleagues waited, and in the following spring, they did, in fact, observe tool use yet again. Three of the four pigs in the enclosure were using bark to help dig out their nests, bark or sticks, So does digging with bark count as tool use? Uh, We can look in more detail in a minute. But yes, I I think it meets the regular criteria, right? It's using an object outside the body, a freely manipulable object to change the environment. And there's no doubt that they're doing it. There's video you can watch online, uh, though they do seem a little clumsy at it. They don't look like hyper, like dexterous tool users. Mm -hmm. It's more kind of like... They're flipping the stick all over the place, and it kind of moves the dirt around, which does make me wonder, what did tool use look like when, like, our ancestors
1: first started doing it?
0: (laughs) Just, like, you know, wildly swinging things around and occasionally getting some benefit out of it.
1: Well, I mean, I think a lot of us uh probably fit that description when we use uh, you know, a particular utensil or go after a particular task in the kitchen that we don't normally do. Sure. Like I was grating a sweet potato last night and I feel like oh, no. that was basically what was happening. People who were observing it might think, "Wow, this this uh, this ape can barely manipulate this tool." <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if this counts as tool Does using it? intelligence. Yes. <laughs> yes, is it tool using intelligence or is it just uh, uh, occasionally rubbing and fumbling this piece of the metal against the, this uh, tuber? We're not sure, Robert. Are your knuckles okay? Did you lose any knuckles? No, no. Luckily, my my knuckles, my my skin, that's all fine. Uh, but um, uh, the potato did suffer.
0: Oof, I have lost a knuckle or two to the grater before. <laughs>
1: but my my point being, uh, uh, you don't have to be uh, you know an artful user of a tool to be a tool user. Right. Right. Uh, you know, that's exactly right. Uh, so Ruth Bernstein and her
0: co-authors published their research in the journal Mammalian Biology in September 2019. And so uh, all the authors were uh, Meredith Ruth Bernstein, uh, Trupti Narayan, Lucille Cornier, and Audie Bourgeois. The article was called Context-Specific Tool Use in Seuss Sebifrons in Mammalian Biology, uh, and this was published just in September in 2019. So specifically, what's going on with the digging process here? Well, things become kind of interesting. So the authors documented pigs using tools to dig four times in 2016 and seven times in 2017, and it seems that the tool use always came in the middle of the nest digging process Uh, Ultimately, of course, the nest they're producing is going to be like a little dugout pit, and it's going to be lined with leaves, and that's where the piglets go. Uh, They also observed that the male pig's digging was clumsier and less productive than the digging by the females. Uh, It also seemed that the knowledge about how to use the digging implements was being passed on both vertically from mother to offspring and horizontally by being taught to the males by the females.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: They also introduced foreign objects into the enclosure, like they put spatulas in there to see if the pigs would try to use them. Apparently, they did sort of a couple of times, but they seemed to prefer
1: the sticks in the bark. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, a spatula seems like it would—it would not be the best tool anyway for that—that that task.
0: Oh, I don't know. You could dig in loose soil okay with a spatula, yeah,
1: yeah, okay, but like a metal spoon would be better. Yeah, but biting on a metal spoon might hurt. That is true. I mean, using yeah. their mouth. Yeah, we're, we're still giving them a human tool, mm-hmm. uh, f- and this—this this is a creature that, would, that is using a tool in a, in a different manner. We, in we a- need to make special pig digging mecha
0: suits, and then <laughs> we'll really see how far their tool-using intelligence goes. Uh, but the authors argued that the observed behaviors do meet the best definition of tool use, and I want to read a quote uh, about how they explain this. They say, uh, it is tool use, quote, because it involved the manipulation of an external object, the bark, the stick, or the spatula, it occurred exclusively and regularly within a goal-oriented repeated action pattern. Okay, so it's not just like they're running around with sticks in their mouths all the time and occasionally it moves some soil. It only happens sometimes and only when they're digging nests. And to continue with their quote, they say, and as its end result, it altered both the distribution of the soil to make a pit and the physical properties of the tool user, uh, a physical disposition digging action. And thus it likely also included information transfer to the tool user in the form of proprioceptive feedback different to that without tool use. So there's an information thing again, like using the stick to have a different method of like feeling how deep the hole is and stuff. So one question is, how has this behavior escaped attention so long? Uh, in uh, Delamore's article, she mentions that well, wild pigs are sometimes understudied, so maybe that's the case. Mm. Uh, but also, you know, one thing to think about is these pigs are in captivity. Animals in captivity also sometimes show behaviors that the same animals do not exhibit in the wild. But then again, it seemed like the bark was only used for digging nests and only at a specific stage in the nest building process, which makes it pretty different from most of the repetitive, compulsive types
1: behaviors that you would see induced by captivity. Right. Yeah. It's not not a situation where these pigs were doing this all the time. They were only doing it like every six months yeah. during their, their nest building uh, activities.
0: Right. It's not the panther pacing in its cage in yeah. a way that it would not pace in the wild. Uh, so the question is, do we find examples of these endangered pigs or other related pigs using tools in the wild? I think this is the first really documented case that's clear, but in her article, Delamore notes an interesting anecdote from somebody uh, she talks to, somebody named Fernando Dino Gutierrez, who is president of the Philippine Conservation Group known as the Talarak Foundation. And so here's this story, quoting from Delamore's article, uh, quote, a few years ago, Gutierrez witnessed a group of wild pigs pushing rocks toward an electric fence to test it. And Gutierrez says, as soon as they push and the rocks make contact, they would wait for the clicking sound or absence thereof. Clicking means the wires are hot and they will back off and not cross. No sounds mean it is safe to investigate what's beyond the wire. Uh, So that seems like uh, pigs using – like possible edge case there of pigs using tools to mediate the flow of information.
1: Clever girl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They were testing the fences (laughs) systematically for weaknesses. Absolutely, They remember. But as for whether these specific pigs, the Visayan uh, warty pigs, do this kind of thing in the wild, I think we don't really know. Of course, there aren't many of them in the wild. I think there might just be a few hundred. Their numbers are not really known. Uh, But uh, wild pig scientists of the world, combine your powers. Figure this out. Plunge the depths of pig technology.
1: Yeah, it would be be wonderful to to hear more about this and, and certainly to hear about how it's occurring in the wild.
0: Now, there's one last thing, though, that makes this even more interesting. It's not clear to Ruth Bernstein and her co-authors that the bark or the stick provides much of a utilitarian advantage, if any. Uh, according to the study, it seemed digging with the stick was sometimes less efficient than digging with the hooves or with the snout, which is, mm. of course, what they would normally use, I think. So, If and again, you can see this. If you watch the video, the digging does sort of work, but it also looks kind of bumbling and funny, and you can imagine that digging with the snout or the hooves would actually be pretty quick so if the bark isn't necessarily speeding up the digging process even though it is working it's, if it's not making the process faster or more efficient why do it at all hmm. one thing that occurred to me is well well maybe the snout gets sore i mean th- that
1: could be a thing yeah yeah that's that's one possibility um uh, one also wonders, of course, if, if there is something communicated through the act of using the tool, if it's some sort of a, like a, a physical mental fitness uh, communication.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing. So this could be tool use that actually, even though it's tool use, doesn't exist primarily for utilitarian advantage. What if this is just a learned animal cultural behavior? Sometimes animals do just pick up and repeat behaviors from one another, even though they don't provide an obvious continuing material benefit. Uh, Of course, we can imagine that the brain must be supplying some kind of internal reward that motivates the pig's behavior. But of course, you know, we know from our own experience that we... Do behaviors all the time that don't provide a clear evolutionary utilitarian benefit. They're just sort of like a, a cultural artifact. It's something a behavior popped up. It gets rewarded for some reason in our brains, even though it's not helping us like live longer, be stronger, or reproduce more.
1: Well, and then th- via culture, there there are various uh, specific tools that we continue to use, despite the fact that there are much better ways to go about a particular task. The main idea that the main example that comes to my mind is the uh, the wooden. Hunt. Honey ladle uh, implement. Oh yeah, um, uh, we've talked about this on the show before oh, yeah. about how it's, it's just it's a messy, unnecessary thing that looks cool. People like the way it looks. People like the way it looks, but the honey bear, the squeezable honey bear, is by far the superior means of putting honey on anything or in anything.
0: But what if these pigs are using the sticks to dig for the same reason that you might use the uh, you might use the wooden honey spoon thing? I don't even know what you call.
1: Yeah. I think. I think it has a name, and yeah. we're forgetting it once more. The the honey knob, <laughs> the honey knob, the ridged honey knob. Even though, yeah, the squeeze bear that you just squeeze with your own hands is more efficient. But yeah, why? Now, another possibility that comes to mind here, too, is so so we're looking to learn more about the wild impl- implementation of this uh, tool use. Yeah. So one question I would have is, OK, in the wild, are they using the same uh, pieces of wood, the same pieces of bark mm. or are they comparable? Uh, and if they're not, that could be a, an issue, right? Maybe they're using a, a different type of wood in the wild. The oh, other-
0: that's true. Yeah. Maybe this is a behavior that the they're trying
1: to use tools that are the inferior versions of the tool that would be in their native range. Right. Or then also they're threatened by habitat loss. So yeah. maybe they don't even in the wild have the same access anymore and they're making do with uh, inferior tools to carry out this, uh, uh, this practice that they've been doing for, uh, you know, for, for, for so long. It's like
0: after a nuclear apocalypse finding humans making phone calls with tin cans and string, <laughs> you know? It's like uh why are they doing that? The tin the tin cans and string don't work all that well, but it's because they they're so used to doing the regular phone calls and they don't have the right
1: tools anymore. Oh man, can you imagine a a post-apocalyptic a world in which uh, there are no more smartphones, but uh, but but people still use uh, like little chunks of stone or wood oh. as if they were smartphones. They're essentially like little idols, little uh, wooden go- gods that they speak to and listen to. Yes, they carry around little rectangular flints that they stare at while
0: they're out in public. And yeah. then if they see somebody they don't want to talk to, they can pretend to be doing something on their flint, and then, mm-hmm. so they don't have to look up and make eye contact. Yeah. Well, to bring it back to the Gadarene swine, I mean, it makes me think about how, in a way, a lot of our, our culturally learned behaviors are kind of like a, a, a weird little demon possession, right? They're a thing that gets in our brain and exists for its own sake, even though it doesn't necessarily help us in any way. We just keep doing it. You know, it's like it's the it's the self-rewarding subroutine. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: All right, so there you have it. I feel like we covered a lot of ground in this episode. You know, <laughs> uh, if, if you're playing the uh, the, the uh, stuff to blow your mind drinking game, I guess you got to uh, you got to take multiple shots here. We managed to fit a, a Bible story in there. We had a, a skit with demons in it. Uh, we got into uh, tool use and animal intelligence. Uh, a little bit of, uh, of Chinese mythology incorporated as well. That's a lot of my favorite stuff. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it's all ultimately a Halloween episode because at the heart uh, we're we're still dealing with the story of exorcism. So I'm looking up anagrams for Legion, like uh, like Linoge in the
0: uh, Stephen King story. There are really not very many good ones. We got Leg Ion.
1: Okay, Leg that's Ion. That's not really an not anagram, as good,
0: but, but still good. <laughs> that just inserts the space. But we also got Ogle In. Ogle In sounds good. Ego Nil. Yeah, I like that one. Lean
1: Go. Yeah. L- line Go. An old gin, old gin. Well, those demons are going to need a lot of names because there are a lot of them. I think we must end there. All right. Well, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, go forth and do so. Uh, you'll find them wherever you get your podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts, just make sure you rate and review. Make sure you subscribe. That's a great way to support the show. You can also get us uh, find our episodes at stufftoblowyourmind.com. dot uh, Also, we have another show called Invention that we, uh, we we highly recommend you check out. This month, we have a number of es- uh, episodes that have come out about caskets, casket science, casket history, weird casket. Get inventions uh, well worth listening to if you're uh, in the mood for more seasonal content.
0: Yeah, if you're not subscribed to Invention, go subscribe now. Ogle in. Uh, big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, come on and ogle on in at uh, contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Your mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.